The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. This is one of my favorite passages in the Bible, actually. In particular, that part there at the end, that part where they were praying together in boldness and they were praying and the Spirit filled them and how this, the place was shaken. The second Bible study that I ever did in my life, the first one was in James and it was a nightmare, and the second one was this. The second time I'd ever taught a Bible study in front of a group of people, I taught that passage and I taught about boldness. And I remember studying it and reading and I was, there was just something in me that I think all of us could probably resonate to some degree, like that we would want to experience that. I mean, just imagine like being in that place, praying with those people, people who felt powerless not long before this, people who felt scattered and weak, people who, who are definitely not the ruling class and people of authority and influence in Jerusalem. And here they are gathered together praying to God. And it's almost as if God gives them this sign of, I'm here, I'm strong, we're going to do this. And literally they pray up an earthquake. Like, wouldn't that be amazing? You guys are going to have to pray harder here, I'm telling you, because I want that. Like, but wouldn't that be amazing? Like, isn't there a part of us, I think, that wants that? I know we're not supposed to chase the supernatural, we chase Jesus, and God will do what he does along the way. But, like, I remember studying this and teaching this and thinking, like, I want to be a part of something like that. And so the question before us today, I think, is, is what if we actually could? And, and, and I don't mean even just necessarily pray up an earthquake, though that would be rad. Um, but... What if there's even more than that? Like, what if that's nothing compared to what God really wants us to experience with him if we would just trust, obey, and believe? That's the question that's before us this morning. Um, Mitch's song that he just did, the new song that he did, which I like that song, Mitch. That's a good song. Basically, he just preached my entire sermon in those song lyrics. So so if you want to check fantasy football scores or whatever, I don't. I, I don't totally blame you, but I'll encourage you to, to lean in. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to keep going on. We're going through this series in the book of Acts. And the theme of the book of Acts is found in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. We've got the words here for you. It says this, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That's the theme. God's telling his people, Jesus, having resurrected and ascended to the throne, sends his Holy Spirit to his people, and he says, you're going to receive power when my spirits come upon you, and the purpose of all of that is that you might then go and make disciples throughout the end of the world, throughout the ends of the earth. You're going to spread my message throughout the world, and everything from that moment on throughout the book of Acts up until this very day is just that played out. I mean, we are here because of that verse. We are part of the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit going into the church and then spreading throughout Jerusalem, Judea, and the ends of the earth. And like we've said before, if you're starting in Jerusalem, Medford, Oregon is pretty much the ends of the earth. So it's come true, amen? That's why we're in this room. And so as we're going through this series, what we're learning here is we're learning not just where we came from, but we're learning where we're going because that mission hasn't changed. So the Acts series, this idea of one God, one church, one mission, we're the same. Like when you're studying these stories of the apostles in the early church, you're not learning about other people, you're learning about us. This is our heritage, and this is also our mission in where we're headed. Amen, church? 
So that's what we're doing as we study this. And the church has definitely started out with a bang. Uh, 3,000 people getting saved on day one. As Mitch said two weeks ago when he taught, that is an administrative nightmare for an early church to begin with. Like one altar call and 30,000 people, or sorry, 3,000 people come forward and get saved. Like what do you do with that on day one? But it's, but it's amazing because then as we saw that God had things under control, right? Like people are going into their homes and they're sharing meals together. They're sharing resources together. They're even selling things so that they have things to give to those who don't have. And, and they're just sort of figuring it out. Everything's just sort of working and they're growing and they're worshiping and, and all of this kind of stuff. And the problem though is, as these kind of victories are, are growing, as Jesus is proclaimed and as Jesus is preached, he's always going to be challenging the status quo. And that's going to cause problems. Whenever Jesus is exalted, he's going to challenge the status quo of the powers that be are, that are in that area. Be they here, be they in our own lives, or be they in Jerusalem, especially here in Jerusalem, the place where they tried to get rid of Jesus by killing him. So now it's gone from this small band of disciples to 3,000 people, and so they're going to be back on the radar again, right? So there's going to be problems that we're going to start seeing play out. So as they're growing, things are going to get going well. And then this guy at the temple gets healed. Pastor Aaron shared this story last week. You guys, if you grew up in church, you probably know the Sunday school song, walking and leaping and praising God. There's this guy who has been crippled for 40 years. And he's sitting at the, the gate beautiful outside the temple. And as Peter and John are coming in to go to pray at the temple, he's there begging for money. And Peter's famous line, he says to him, uh, silver and gold I don't have, but what I do have I'll give you. In the name of Jesus, arise and walk. And this guy just stands up and is walking. And, and it's this undeniable miracle. And so as you know, the crowds gather. They're in this place called Solomon's Porch or Solomon's Portico. Uh, a portico, is, it's on the outside, on the eastern side of the temple. And it's basically like a long, I don't know, colonnade. It's like a long, wide hallway, at, but it's open with like columns all the way down the side. It's outside the court of the Gentiles where the most people would be, outside the court of the women. And, and so there's this area there. And this guy's just jumping up and down and causing all this commotion. It's prayer time there at the temple. And he's just worshiping and going nuts. And and so obviously people are drawn, like, what is going on? And again, he's been doing this for 40 years, so they realize something's happened, and so there's this commotion that happens. And Aaron, last week, if you missed it, he walked us through this sermon that Peter preaches where he's saying to them, essentially, like, everybody, why are you, why are you stunned that this happened? I mean, Jesus is putting all things back together. And why are you looking at us as if we were the ones that actually did this? This is, this is what Jesus has always said he was going to do. And so they're preaching this sermon, and as we find out in our text today, another 5,000 men are saved. So who knows how many total between women or children and all this kind of stuff. I mean, this is blowing up, and it's going to get the attention of the powers that be. And so that's what we see here this morning, that Jesus is kind of challenging the, the status quo here as this happens. And in verse 1 it says of chapter 4, and as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed, because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection for the dead. Now you need to know the Sadducees are the theological liberals of that day. They did not believe in many literal interpretations of the scriptures. In, in fact, they did not believe in a resurrection and they did not believe in miracles. So they've got a problem here. Because what's happening is a miracle has occurred. He's kind of standing there, right? And then 
Peter is using this opportunity and this miracle to preach what? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. So there's an issue. And they are greatly annoyed, as you might say. It it would be, I mean, you can kind of understand it. I mean, imagine if like someone from the Mormon church was on our front steps this morning preaching something. I'd probably be annoyed. I wouldn't arrest them. I don't think, can we do that, Aaron? I don't know, probably not. But, um, but I would be annoyed, right? So you can understand what's going on. But, but these aren't, this isn't just a church. These guys are like part of the rulers of Israel. They have great authority there. They have a lot of power that the average, if you will, church pastor doesn't have. And so they come upon these guys and they're very upset about it. Verse 3, they arrested them, put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. I do love that. We'll just throw them in jail. All right, gospel keeps going. I mean, that's what, that's what Paul teaches, right? He even says, hey, I'll just have you know that I'm in prison, but that's even only served to further spread the gospel. So th- this idea that we can just lock people away and just shut their mouths up and somehow that's going to thwart the plan of God is foolishness because the power is not in the people, the power is in the message and the gospel is still being proclaimed and still growing. So even though these guys are getting locked away, people are talking and people are getting saved and the church is still growing, amen? It's awesome stuff. We should think about that. We're going to today, verse 5. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with, and do these names ring a bell? Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in their midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? So let's think about this. Those first two names ring a bell for anyone that's been with us in the Luke series. Annas and Caiaphas. These are the men who put Jesus on trial. These are the men who arrested Jesus and had him brought in and had him start challenging, who are you, what's your authority, all of these sorts of things, and then found him, they sinfully find Jesus guilty of blasphemy for claiming to be the Son of God. They're men who have already enacted false courts, illegal, unjust courts and rulings, and killed Jesus. This is who these people are. And so, remember this. Peter and John, the two people who are right here, where were they when that happened? They were there. Peter and John were the two disciples at the trial. Peter, by the fires right outside that courtyard there, that's where when a little girl comes to him and says, you're one of Jesus's people, right? He vehemently denies it and runs for the hills. And John also is the other apostle who followed. So think about this. They're seeing all of this happen again. And they've been there before. And they saw the results of that trial. They saw Jesus getting beaten. Remember, they would cover his head and hit him. And they would say, who did that? Prophesy. Tell us who hit you if you're such a prophet. Like they saw all of that happen. And now they're in that spot. So I wonder how they felt. I wonder what they're thinking. Do they think that they're next? Are they expecting that to happen? Are they expecting to be crucified too? Because hasn't Jesus even warned them about some of these kind of things? That if they hated me, they're going to hate you too. So I think it's safe to say fear would be understandable. Amen? Fear would be very understandable. Concern, very concerned. All understandable. So what's Peter going to do now? Verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, 
If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? And by the way, so think about that. The question is, whose authority are you under? That's what they're saying. And so what's their obvious answer? Jesus, the one you killed and tried to get rid of. So you know that's not going to be a popular answer with them. And they know that's the answer to the question. So just put yourself in that position. Think about it. Peter says, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, then let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. People, listen, this is like a punch here, man. Even that last part, there is no other name under heaven by which people may be saved than Jesus Christ. That was actually a saying before he said that. But instead of saying Jesus Christ, they said Caesar. So that was a phrase of loyalty to the Roman government. So he's saying Hey, this, this isn't just an authority over you, the religious leaders. This is an authority over the most powerful kings that this world even knows of. It's a claim of the ultimate authority of Jesus Christ. That's what Peter says. What happened to this guy? Like just over three months ago, a young girl goes, you follow Jesus, don't you? He goes, bleep, no, and runs. People don't change that fast, do they? Like, that was just like a hundred days ago. But now we have this difference, and it's the very beginning of verse 8. But then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them. Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit. He's got a different power inside him at this point. This isn't about Peter's boldness and bravado. This is about the Holy Spirit doing work. And, and, and look at this. Like, you go, wait a minute. Didn't the Holy Spirit come in Acts chapter 2? And did it leave? And now it came back? Like, how did it work? No, no, no. God never leaves us. God is always with us. He will never abandon us. But there are times where this, the power, the supernatural empowerment of God, where the Holy Spirit moves in a specific and supernatural way to accomplish God's will through God's people. And so something specific is happening, even in this moment. It's, it's like a whole other level of Peter we're seeing right here. But it's not really Peter. It's not even really Peter. I mean, like we even saw in the prayer later that they're going to pray later, they talk about how David's prayers and David's psalms that he wrote, it wasn't even really him. It was the Holy Spirit speaking through him. And that's what's happening right here. The Holy Spirit has stepped up and said, I got this, Peter. You just move your mouth. I'll do the rest. And Peter is boldly proclaiming not just how this guy got healed, but the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the ultimate authority of Jesus Christ over the world. It's a massive statement, bigger than they were anticipating. So what do you do with this? Luke had talked about this, or Jesus had, I'm sorry, in the book of Luke. Look at Luke 21, it says this. Jesus' words. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and they will persecute you delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it therefore in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. Let's think about that right there. He's saying, like, look, Peter, don't sit down and prescript your stuff 
Don't stay up all night in prison knowing you're going to be in trial the next day worrying about this. Like, this isn't about you, Peter. You're going to see something happen. My spirit's going to move through you. And the words that I'm going to give you are going to be words that no man could possibly deal with. He's, he's kind of guaranteeing them a certain amount of theological victory out of this, which is rather reassuring, right? This is what he's told them they're go- is going to happen. So they know about this. Jesus has promised them this and that he would give them words they could never refute or never defeat. So Peter is able to speak, empowered by the Holy Spirit, with the kind of boldness we've never seen before. In a situation where fear should, fear should be destroying Peter right now. He's crumbled under so much less. And yet now, boldly proclaiming the gospel. And it's rooted in two things. In the power of the Holy Spirit, but let's not forget, it's rooted in the reality that Jesus Christ rose from the grave. Because think about it. He saw what they tried to do to Jesus and did it work? Jesus is alive. Like, don't forget that. He saw the worst possible thing happen and then saw Jesus walking towards him. Like this guy walking is nothing compared to what Peter has already seen and experienced. And so he knows, I'm standing before people that if they throw their absolute worst at me, my God is more powerful than that. And so he has a boldness rooted in, powered by the Holy Spirit and rooted in the reality that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, that Jesus is walking. And what he's really doing here, think about this, as he claims the authority of God over the world, he's saying like everything from this guy's crippled legs to you guys to the world is under the authority of Jesus. So here's what Peter's really doing. He's flipping the trial because he's saying, Look, I'm not standing under your authority. Like, you're asking me to answer for who I am and all this kind of stuff. But the reality is that you are under God's authority. And so really, you've got some questions you need to ask. You've got to think about this. You guys killed Jesus, you know, and he rose from the grave. That's going to be a problem for you. You you might want to think about that. (laughs) You tried to kill the Son of God. You killed the Messiah that you've been preaching about and waiting for, the stone that the builders rejected. You killed that guy, and he rose from the dead. You might want to think about what power and authority you're serving under. And that's what he's doing. He's completely flipping the trial here. And and God has given him this supernatural boldness. But I don't want us to go too far down that, because we can read that and go, Yeah, get him, Peter! Right? I mean, that's what I want to do. Like, I read that, like, oh, it's like a, a few good men. You can't handle the truth. Like, this, get those speeches and get you all pumped up, that kind of thing. But here's the deal, though. When the Holy Spirit gives you a spirit of boldness, it is not arrogance. It is not aggression. It is not mean. It is not glory in our victories. That's not what's happening here. This boldness is not, is not aggressive. This boldness is not puffed up in something that you think you're getting me, I'm getting you. That's not what's happening here at all. This boldness is actually grounded in love for his enemies, just like Jesus on the cross praying and forgiving his enemies in that moment. He's sharing the gospel with these guys. He's giving them the opportunity to be saved. His ultimate goal is not to win an argument. Hey, Facebook people, let me say that again. His ultimate goal is not to win an argument. It's to save people. His ultimate goal is not to beat his enemies. It's that his enemies would become his friends, would become his family, because they were saved by his Savior. That's the ultimate goal. 
I actually even saw a clip just this week. This is one of those side roads I shouldn't take, but too late. So um, I, I, I saw a video clip this week where an independent, fundamental preacher somewhere way back in the South, I don't know what his name was, and you wouldn't either, but was talking about homosexuals from the pulpit. And he was saying, I know what we'll do with homosexuals. All we got to do is we'll put, put a bunch of them in a fenced-in area. We'll put the lesbians on one side and we'll put the homosexuals on the other side and we'll give them food from time to time. And since they can't reproduce, over time, the problem will take care of itself. That was his message. That is the most unchristian, ungospel centered message in the world. That is a mentality that goes, it's us against them and we need to get rid of them. And that is not what Jesus did. If you're following that, you are not following the heart of Jesus. You're trying to defeat your enemies. You're not trying to save them. Peter's message here is not just to beat the guys who beat his Savior. It's that the people who killed his Savior themselves might be saved. Why? Because deep down we all know this, don't we? It's our own sin that killed Jesus. We all have his blood on our hands. It's the fact that we rebelled against God that Jesus had to come here. My sin, your sin, all of our sin. And so if the people who are guilty of the death of Jesus were punished, we would be in big trouble. Praise God that Jesus showed me grace and forgave me. And how dare we be those who would then withhold such grace to someone else. That's not the Holy Spirit moving. Peter's boldness is rooted in love. Be careful that your boldness doesn't slip into arrogance. Amen? And we, hey, we're all guilty of this. We are all guilty of this. Something else Peter will say one day when he's writing a letter to a church, he's going to say, hey, I just think it right while I'm in this position to stir you up by putting you in remembrance of all these things. And it's good to remember that, right? Boldness is not arrogance. Boldness in Jesus is sharing the gospel in love. Amen? And that is what he's doing. And one other side note, he's speaking about the exclusivity of the gospel. He says that there is no other way under heaven by which men may be saved. And many people in our world around us today will say, that is an arrogant message. That that is, a, that is a being too exclusive and you're shutting everyone else out. And that it's mean. But here's the thing. Number one, it's not mean if it's true right? Like if if the building here is on fire and that's the only unlocked door right over there and I said, guys, there is no other way that you're going to be saved unless you walk through that door. That is not mean. I'm loving you by saying I want you to be saved. So remember that. But the other part is like, what is the means by which that salvation occurs? People that would say Christianity is so close-minded and so mean. It's that Jesus himself died for you. It's the most loving act in the history of the world. It's the farthest thing from me. So don't don't be ashamed of the exclusivity of Christianity. There is no other savior. It's just the truth. But share it in love, boldly, but in love. Amen? So moving on, that's another side note. Verse 13. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. I love this. Um, First of all, no one in this room needs a seminary education to be used by God. No one. Now, I'm not bashing on seminary education, depending on which seminary you chose, but I'm not bashing on seminary education. I have one. I'm not bashing on that. 
Um, it can be a really good, a really helpful, take you deeper and study. There's all sorts of benefits from it. I've benefited greatly from my time at Western Seminary. But it is not a prerequisite for you to be used by God. Every single person in this room. I've got this leadership cohort, this group of guys, 10 to 12 guys every year that I just pull together from the church. And, and we spend a year together just studying different things together. And just this last week, we were watching this, um, this teaching where this guy was talking about the gospel and how he shares the gospel with people. And our, our topic this week was evangelism. So we're, we're learning about this stuff. And some of the guys in the room, as we were discussing it after, they were like, man, he's just like so good at that. Like he's just so, the way he uses words and the way he thinks and the way he's, people will say things and he's able to turn that to the gospel. He's like, man, I just don't, I wish I was smart enough to pull that kind of stuff off. And I was like, guys, that's not because of his seminary education. That's because he does it. Like he does it a lot. And so he practices it and he gets good with it and he's growing in that. That's not, don't feel like, man, I, I need to study more to share the gospel. I'll show you why in just a little bit. But the other thing that's, that's important to notice right here, it says that they look like Jesus. And don't, don't misunderstand this. It doesn't mean in that moment this glow came upon them and a halo appeared and it was like, ah, in that moment. Why do they look like Jesus? Because they're standing in a trial in the same exact way that Jesus stood in a trial. They're answering with convictions in their faith, but with love on their face. They're doing the exact same things that those exact same men had seen Jesus do, just not so hundred, whatever it was, days previously. They're following their Savior. They've seen what he did. They've spent time with him. They're becoming more and more and more like Jesus. And now, especially, being empowered by his very Spirit. And these guys can see it. They can tell there's something different going on here. They're like, these guys are just like farmers from Galilee, fishermen from Galilee, except that they're kind of not. They're more like Jesus. It's, an empower, it's a powerful witness. So moving forward, but also remember this too. Like we, we can read these stories and kind of do like what my guys in that leadership cohort last week did with this other teacher that we were following, where you can look at that teacher and go, man, that guy is just so impressive. I, I'm not smart enough or skilled enough to pull that off. And we can do that with the apostles now, because now we're in the book of Acts and they're not idiots anymore, right? Like we, we feel like they're idiots in Luke, but now they're not idiots. And so we read it and we go, yeah, that's great. But the thing is, though, those are the apostles. I could never do that. Just remember, these guys, even in this courtroom, are looking at them going, this is crazy because we should not be impressed by these people. Like they were not impressive giants of theology or any of those kind of things. They were men who trusted God, who were faithful to God's calling, who were empowered by God's spirit, and who continued to pursue grace in and, 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 and Jesus Christ. That's who they were. That's available to every single person in this room. You don't have to spend 20 grand on a seminary education for that. Amen? But we'll get into that a little more in a second. Verse 14, seeing the man who was healed beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. So that's awesome. They're like, I'd love to say something. Oh, but who brought him in the room? <laughs> They're like, we can't. What are we supposed to say? Dude's right there. He's like, <clears throat> like standing in the background like, were you guys going to say something? <laughs> like, like, how are they going to argue that? So also remember this. When, when you do the route, like we were just saying just a minute ago, like, man, if I could go to seminary, oh, man, if I could just study more, I, maybe I'd share the gospel if I knew more. You're depending more on intellect. And most people aren't converted. Honestly, most people aren't converted by your logic or your intellect or your arguments or any of that kind of stuff. Most people are converted because they have personal relationships with you and they see a changed life and they see your story. 
And in this particular situation, that's what they're seeing right here. They're like, these guys clearly have been with Jesus, and there's a clear change right here that we don't understand. And, and that's the stumbling point for them. They have nothing that they can argue back. It doesn't mean that everyone's going to believe your message, but they can't argue with that. And so this is what's happening here. They're, it's like John 9. Remember in John 9, Jesus heals the blind man? And, and so these same kind of religious leaders are all gathered together, and they're even going like, okay, what is with this? And who did this? They're trying to interview him. And what does the blind man say? All I know is this. Once I was blind, now I see. You figure it out. And that's just the reality. The gospel paired with a changed life is pretty hard to refute. You, don't, you can go into an intellectual argument fearing getting beat by the intellectual argument. But if you're going in trusting in the truth of the gospel and your own changed testimony, what do you got to be afraid of in that? Amen? So, verse 15. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in his name. So now the question of fear, is, it's flipped. Before, are the apostles going to be afraid and shut up in front of the council? But, but now the question is this, will the council, will the leaders fear God and understand what's going on? Or are they going to fear man? In other words, their question is this. Instead of saying, what must we do to be saved? They switch and they say, what must we do that our power and authority is saved? And so instead of fearing God and fearing what's happened here and understanding the truth, their fear is more about losing what they have. And so they refuse to repent. They refuse to recognize the truth. I mean, look, think about what they're saying. They're like, we can't even argue this. So let's just get rid of it. That's what they're trying to do. It's really sad, actually. So verse 18, so they called them and they charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Now keep in mind, they even themselves, if you said, okay, you as a Pharisee, what's more important, that I obey God or obey you? They would all say, oh, you have to obey God. So what Peter and John are saying is like, they're, they're kind of taking their own theology and sort of pushing it in front of them and saying, hey, wh- why don't you guys decide what's more right, that we obey you or obey God? Because for us, we can't not talk about this. How do we not talk, how do we not talk about this? You ever had something like that that you just have to talk about? We all do it. You, a, a movie you saw that you just had to go talk about to everybody or something like that? I, I had an experience earlier this year where I, I caught a fish this year that some of you guys, it was even in the news. Somebody, some of you guys saw this story. I got this crazy opportunity to catch this really weird, crazy fish, and it was just awesome. And I wanted to talk about it to everyone on the planet. Like, I wanted to do billboards. I wanted to talk about it. But here's the thing. I didn't want nobody to know where I caught that fish. That was the hardest thing in the world. People would be talking to me all the time. Where'd you get it? And there were a couple of times where I was like, you know, in the water. <laughs> like I'd be like right on the cusp because it was something so cool and so great. It was like this amazing opportunity. And I'm just like, I can't believe that even happened. I want to tell everyone about it. How much more this? They just watched Jesus rise from the dead. And these guys are like, don't talk about it. Don't talk about it. How? How is that even possible that I not talk about this? We have to talk about the reality of the gospel. It's changed our lives. He's the king of the world. And you want us to not talk about it? 
not possible. That should be our heart. Should be for every one of us. How do we not talk about Jesus? But I'll get to that in a minute, lest you feel guilty for too long. Just kidding. Um, so they tell him, and, and, you know, we're to obey the authorities unless it contradicts God's word. So they're like, basically, nope. In verse 21, when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. 40 years of cripple that they've seen, and it's gone now. Now this is going to boil now, right? I mean, this guy's walking around all the time. And when people are like, man, you're walking? What happened? What do you think he's going to say? By the power of Jesus Christ, I was healed. Those guys that followed that guy that they killed before, they, you won't believe what happened. Like he's going to tell people and they're going to tell people. Like this is going to keep stirring. Not to mention, we now have thousands of converts in the city of Jerusalem. So there's a problem coming. The persecution and the issues that are going to begin to follow coming up are going to grow. And let's not forget this and laugh it off necessarily. The threats are real. Like people are going to die because of this. So the threats coming are real and they're intense and it's a big deal. Like there is crisis brewing. Don't forget in the boldness of the Holy Spirit the reality of the challenge that's coming, right? There's a significant issue that's building up. These threats are real. So verse 23, when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. Okay, so now think about it. What will these people think? I mean, those are the apostles. Of course, they're bold, right? But now these are, these are like next tier down, you might say. And they're gathering together and they're like, hey, here's what happened. We, were, we got arrested. We, where were you last night? Well, we were in jail. We spent the night in jail, but here's what happened. This guy got healed and they threw us in jail and all this. Well, what happened? What did the chief priests and stuff say to you? They threatened us and they told us that we're not allowed to talk about Jesus anymore. And they, there were some pretty severe threats that they were saying. So what would you think? What would your spirit feel in those moments? Like, would there be temptations for fear? Oh, you better believe it, right? I mean, remember, they killed Jesus. Who are you? Right? So what are these people going to do? What's their prayer going to be? What are they going to ask for help with? What are all these things? What's going to do? I want you to look at this. They're not filled with fear. They're filled with awe and praise. Verse 24. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made heaven and earth and sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why do the Gentiles rage and peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and rulers were gathered together against the Lord and his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate. That's, there's Roman leaders, there's religious leaders, there's area kings. All of them gathered together against Jesus is what they're saying. Along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Now, I want you to think about something here. Think about this prayer. They just got warned that they have been threatened that there's going to be repercussions, there's going to be problems if they continue to speak the name of Jesus. 
So I want you to think about what they pray. First of all, I want you to notice what the prayer does not include. What do they not pray for? There's no prayer for escape. There's no prayer. Lord, they're threatening us. Oh, please take them out. There's no, Lord, they're threatening to come out of us. Lord, please don't let us suffer. Lord, please don't let us get beaten. Lord, please don't let us, like there's no prayer for self-preservation. The prayer's for message preservation, for boldness and faithfulness through the persecution, but at no point is there any prayer whatsoever for deliverance that they might avoid the things that were coming. Why? I'm, I think I'd pray for that. I mean, that's what we do for sure, right? And that's okay. I'm not, I'm not dogging that. I'm just amazed that they didn't. And I think part of it was, believe, it was because they have been taught and they have believed so much of what Jesus has taught them. Like, let's just look at a few verses that I've got here. That, these are things that Jesus taught them. John 15, 18. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Look at Luke 6, 22. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name on as evil on account of the Son of Man. You ever had somebody that just hates you? Like I, my, my natural tendencies tend to drift towards people pleasing. And so if I know that someone's really upset with me or they hate me, it will eat me alive. And Jesus is pre, just pre-assuming, hey, people are going to hate you. They're going to revile you on account of me. Look at verse 44. I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Matthew 5.11, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Look what Luke 12.11-12 says. And when they bring you before the synagogue and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Matthew 10. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious about how you are to speak or what you are to say. For what you are to say will be given you in that hour. And Luke 21. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. All of those pre-assume what? You're going to be on trial. (laughs) You're going to have people who are after you, who are coming to get you, and they're going to ask you questions. You're going to have adversaries. You're going to have people who hate you. You're going to have persecution. People are coming after you. The message you're going to carry is not going to bring hugs. Not only hugs, I should say. It's going to bring opposition and persecution and difficulty. And these people knew it so much that they weren't praying to get out of it because Jesus had already promised them that this was just part of it. What they pray for is boldness and faithfulness in the face of the persecution, that their message and their their calling and their mission would not waver based on the hate or persecution or fear that comes their way. But notice what their prayer really does include. Let's take a look at it again. They say, Sovereign Lord, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why do the Gentiles rage and people's plot in vain? That sovereign Lord, what they're saying is, King of the universe. That's who they're praying to. And they say, you're the King of the universe who made everything, including these people. Why do these nations rage against you? Why do they plot against you in vain? 
The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers gathered together against the Lord and his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your servant Jesus, whom you anointed. Both Herod, Pontius Pilate, along with Gentiles and the people of Israel. In other words, the whole world came against Jesus right here. And what do they say about it? To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. That's awesome. Like, man, everybody came against you. And they were pawns in your hands to accomplish what you wanted to happen all along. Church, the mission of God is under zero threat from any human organization on this earth. Zero threat. Like there is nothing should the whole world plot against God. God's plan is in 0% trouble. It is 100% guaranteed to take place exactly as God wills it. There's confidence in that church. There's so much confidence in that. This prayer is so rooted in Scripture. I told you I want you to go to Psalms. Look at Psalm chapter 2. So that prayer is taking from this particular psalm. So let's look at what David's psalm says in its entirety. Verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them into pieces like a potter's vessel. Is there any, does this sound fearful at all? <laughs> Verse 10. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned. So the psalm even says, we're not afraid, but hey kings, enemies, might want to think about this. Be wise, be afraid. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. And blessed are all who take refuge in him. Now, one thing I want to point out, it's very similar to Peter's sermon. It's speaking to the enemy. It's speaking to the opposition. But it's saying, take refuge in the Son. So it's, again, it's not an arrogant boldness that wants to see our enemies crushed. But it's a confidence that, hey, we might be bent, but we won't break. That we are more than conquerors. That we might be afflicted, but we're not destroyed. We might be beaten, we're not cast out. That whole Corinthians passage, all of that kind of stuff. There is a confidence that is rooted in the reality that they know that God is sovereign over the affairs of the world. Just this week, I saw a, a, a clip from a candidate for our next year's presidential election saw a clip from this candidate and they were asking them, what do you think about churches and what you should do with churches and their tax-exempt status as nonprofit organizations if they uh, do not uphold um, your stance on gay marriage and homosexual rights and LGBTQ and all those kind of things. And he said, their tax exemption should be absolutely revoked. There should never be a benefit for anyone who doesn't hold to these kinds of things. And so in, in other words, he's saying, it's not enough that we just agree to disagree and live in different spaces in that. And I don't mean literally, I just mean 
philosophically. It's that everyone now has to adopt this, and if you're not adopting this, there will be penalties that the government now can put upon you. You'll be taxed for it and all this kind of stuff. When I first started watching that, I I felt stuff stirring up in me. Uh, Everything from anger to fear. Man, I, I never thought when I felt the Lord calling me to be a pastor, I never thought that there was any possibility really that I would be pastoring in a day where there could be persecution for the things that we believe. And now it's like, no, that could absolutely happen in my lifetime. No question about it. So what do we do? Well, of course, we go on Twitter and Facebook and we start arguing. <laughs> right? And we show them how that's foolish. That's First Amendment rights and first means first. And you need to think about this. And separation of church and state means that too. And all, we, all these kind of stuff. Now look. That matters. We should, we should know those things. We, we should be educated. We should vote. We should, you know, all those kind of things. But we should never posture out of fear. And most people argue and posture out of either anger and wrath or fear, neither of which are the fruits of the Spirit. What we need to realize is the whole world came together to kill Jesus and they failed. I think an American presidential candidate will totally fit underneath God's umbrella of sovereignty. I think they could take care of that. Right? We don't have to be afraid of that. We need to know and we can, you know, shoot for the best, all that stuff, of course. But you don't have to freak out. You don't have to convert all your followers in, in Facebook to your political ideas. You don't have to do any of those kind of things. You just share the gospel. Just keep the main thing, the main thing, and just keep preaching the gospel and just keep preaching the gospel. This prayer, there's no ask for deliverance from persecution because they know they're going to be okay. How do they know? I mean, how do they know that's true? Those are Old Testament passages and all that. It's an old book written forever ago. That's what they tell us, right? How do they know it's going to be true? Because Jesus Christ rose from the dead and they saw it. He's alive. His resurrection proves that the enemy has no foothold on him. He's defeated sin and death. It's just a matter of time. And the heathens can rage and the political powers that be can plan all they want and then pass whatever laws that cause whatever's going to happen. Our focus should be making sure we stay faithful in God-fearing boldness to the mission and the message of the gospel. We don't have to be afraid of anybody else. We don't have to be afraid of the persecution. We don't have to be afraid of laws or politicians or mean old neighbors or no because our God has assured us victory already and he's coming back so we're okay everybody just right now just go (sighs) right we're gonna be okay we're gonna be okay we don't have to posture from fear because we've already been set to walk in high places we've already been promised victory and a share in that victory by our king I think if we really knew that if we really preach that to ourselves, if we really, really believed that, and if we really trusted in the Spirit, what do we know about the Holy Spirit? These people are filled with the Spirit of God, even as they pray those things. What do we know about the Spirit of God? Second Timothy says this, For God gave us a spirit not of what? Fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. We always remember that God has not given us a spirit of fear, but power, love, and a self-control, or sound mind if you're old school. But look at the next part. Therefore, because we have that spirit, not of fear, but power, love, and sound mind, self-control, don't be ashamed of the gospel. 
and don't worry about suffering and just keep sharing and boldly in love, power and love, sharing the gospel with people that are out there. And don't worry about it. God's got this. If you're dealing with cancer, God's got this. If you're dealing with unemployment, God's got this. If you're dealing with government issues, God's got this. Whatever you're dealing with, God's got this. He is sovereign over the affairs of everything, and nothing can derail God's plan. So you just turn to the king and pray for that continued faithfulness, that continued boldness. Because here's the thing, guys. The same Holy Spirit that shook that building is the same Holy Spirit that is in you if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. It's exactly the same. He has not changed. His power has not deflated. He's in you. See, we can be exactly like this. This is available to us. And so why do we fear, you know, I mean, think about it. Like, right now in Turkey, this whole mess going on over there, There's Christian exiles now being attacked by Muslims and being killed over there because of their religious beliefs. There's like horrors that are taking place over there already. And then over there for years we've had ISIS literally on YouTube beheading Christians over there left and right. And we in our American comfort are afraid to share the gospel with our next door neighbor. Right? Why? Why? God has not given us a spirit of fear. And if they hate us and they revile us, Jesus said we're blessed if that happens. He's got those things under control. Why should we fear? The Lord is the light of my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Now here's what we're going to do. I'm going to ask Mitch to come up here really quick. And one last thing that I want you to do, and we're out of time, so we're going to do it kind of quickly. But the one other thing about their prayer, it doesn't include fear. It does include appeals to the sovereignty of God. And the second thing that it does include, it is a very scripture-based prayer. Like we just saw, they're praying Psalm 2. And I don't know if you've ever done this before. When I started doing this some time ago, like that'll totally change your prayer life. Like I used to read the Psalms as like models of prayer. Now I got to go make up my own, right? But they prayed the scriptures. They would say, Lord, and they're like quoting scriptures. So here's what I'm going to ask everybody to do. Turn to Psalm 27. And we're going to have to leave the lights up, fellas, because they're not going to be able to read their psalm if you kill the lights on them right now. But Mitch is going to play some Krytar here in the background while we do this. Tap into our emotions. (laughs) But here's what I want you to do. Anybody in this room struggling with anything right now? Like facing some problems, fears, mad at MSNBC, (laughs) whatever. Here's another psalm. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? And here's what I want you to do. I want you to, I want you to pray right now. And I want you to pray this. Like I want you to like read this, but this is your prayer to God right now. And, and, and this isn't right now. Not that this is wrong. I'm, I'm not telling you not to pray for deliverance from cancer. Don't misunderstand me. But for right now, I'm asking you to pray that God would use this to chase the fear. Perfect love casts out fear that you might have fear chased out of your heart, that you might have anger or whatever chased out and that you might again be reminded that God is in control and that he is for you. So I want you to just take an opportunity right now, everyone where you are with heads bowed, with your Bibles open. Let's pray Psalm 27.
beingness. Verse 5 says, for he will hide me in his shelter. I want you to pray that. Like, Lord, hide me in your shelter in the day of trouble. Lord, conceal me under the cover of your tent. Lord, lift me high upon a rock. If you're not done, just keep praying. Father, remind us of your sovereign power and will. Father, we thank you for this reminder of your your power. And I pray, God, that that same spirit that shook that room as those believers prayed together would just come upon every single person in this room, Lord that you might give us a supernatural boldness and confidence in your mission and your message, that you might empower us to be witnesses to you, that we might experience your power, Lord, that, that we might not fall to fear or to anger or to any of the things going on, but we might have that renewed confidence again to know that you are totally in control. And Lord, we know that because of the cross. If even the moment when your son is murdered at the hands of all of the world was totally under your control, then how much more is our life? So Lord, we look to the resurrection and we thank you that you are our king. You are our God. You do care for us. You are for us. You have all things under your hand and under your power. Lord, there are situations we want to commit to you from from the murder and persecution of Christians throughout the world to assaults on religious freedom to all of those things. Lord, those are important things, God, and I pray that you would move among them and that your will would be accomplished. But, but Lord, this morning we pray that there would be no fear in the heart of anyone in this room for anything that's coming, that we know that all things are at your disposal, that you turn the hearts of kings like the channels turn a river. And so we just put our total faith in you. And we ask, Lord, that you would grant your people, your spirit, to be faithful to your doctrine, faithful to your calling, faithful to the gospel message, and that we might experience the power of your spirit as we share it with others. For people in this room, Lord, that are hurting, that are dealing with things, God, I pray that you, the God of all comfort, would be upon them. That they would realize that they have a Father who loves them, cares for them, and is in control. And that blessed are those who seek refuge in you. So may they find refuge in you, Lord. And for every single person here, Lord, may it be said even this week for all of us that as as the people we meet and see on a day-to-day basis see us, may it be obvious that we have spent time with Jesus. Lord, draw us into your word. Draw us deeper in prayer. Lead us, Lord, in your ways. 
Grow us closer to you. And Lord, we long for the day that our faith is made sight, that we might see you for who you are in reality. Lord, we long for that day and we pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus. But until that day, our confidence is in your word and your promises for they are true. And we thank you for this reminder this morning.